Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. The most important questions that a lawyer will ever ask in their case is the first ones. So, what are the first questions asked in Scripture? In this new series, First Questions, we'll explore that answer as we look at each of the first questions that are asked by individuals and characters all throughout the Bible. Let's turn now to humanity's first question. Who? Me? We are now in the third part of this sermon series called First Questions, a series that we've been doing for a few weeks now where we explore the first questions that were ever posed in Scripture. And I hope that what you've discovered by now is that the words to the first question are as important are important but they're sometimes not as important as the tone that we hold when we ask the question. You can ask the same question with a different tone and get an entirely different result. And so both the words and the tone of these first questions are important. And tone is important because it does a couple things. One of the things it does often for us is it can either create an environment of suspicion or it can create an environment of concern or care, where we know that we're caring for one another in the question that is asked. And in the first week, I went all the way back to the beginning, the very first question that was ever asked in Scripture, asked by the serpent in the garden, and it was a question of suspicion. And that single question set the tone for how you and I would relate with each other and with God for the rest of time. It set the tone for how we would approach relationships ever since. In fact, I would go out of my way to say, and and just go out on a limb, and I would say that some of you might have trouble today developing relationships because of the suspicion that rises up in your heart, right? You have a hard time developing new relationships, or if you engage in a relationship, you have a hard time holding on to it because suspicion just seems to be around every corner, and it becomes a guiding principle in your life. And and what I would suggest in those moments, and I said this in the very first week, whenever suspicion starts to take over in your life, I want to offer you just a couple things. You can rebuild trust by committing to questions over statements, and community over isolation. Those are the two things. If you're committing your life to more questions than statements and more community rather than isolation, you'll be able to combat the suspicion that comes in your life, the suspicion that comes in every relationship, whether it's a relationship with a spouse or a sibling, a family member of any sort, children, whatever it is, friends, coworkers. If you can commit to those two things, let's commit to questions over statements. Let's commit to being together more than being alone. You can start to see the trust rebuilt. So suspicion is one of the ways that we see. It's one of the questions that come up early on. But the second question, in fact, God's first question, was not a question of suspicion. It was actually a question of care or concern. And sometimes we misinterpret the, the tone of God's question here. Sometimes we assume God's coming on the scene there in the, in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, and he's offering a question of suspicion. And, and what we have to do is pull back for just a minute. Don't look at just the words, but look at God's actions in that space. Because God's actions point us in the direction of saying, this was not a question of suspicion. This was God's care. He was asking Adam and Eve where they were because he wanted to care for them. And his actions sort of solidify that. And God's path of reconciliation and care, it always sort of brings this healing to relationships. It always brings that. But, but on the path of that, that sort of relational restoration, we need, to, we need to find out a couple things in this area too. And on that pathway, we discovered that we can have relational restoration, reconciliation, however you want to phrase that, 
if we have two things. Number one, clarity about our options, clarity about what the future is going to hold in terms of the relationship, and two, if we have grace along the way. We have grace for the ways in which we will mess up, then we will be able to do it. And you see each type of, of question, questions of suspicion, questions of care, each type of question unlocks new doors of possibility in your life uh, and in my life. And as this video shows, when those possibilities come, it can really unlock a brand new world for us. So take just a moment, watch this, and I'll be back with you in a minute. Voltaire said, judge a man by his questions rather than his answers. And he makes a very good point. It's often said that the quality of your life is defined by the questions you ask, because the quality of the question determines the quality of the answer. So it stands to reason that if you can get better at asking questions, then you can get better answers. Better answers result in a whole host of benefits. For example, being better informed allows you to make better decisions. But being better at answering questions doesn't just mean getting better answers. Obtaining information is just one outcome of questioning. Questions can be used for controlling a conversation. This can be particularly useful during an argument or negotiation. Watch out for respondents who only partially answer your questions or stall when responding. Politicians are well known for avoiding the question by giving an unrelated answer. So consider what type of response you are expecting and have a suitable method for making a record of the answer. So there are, there are lots of different ways of asking questions. There's questions of suspicion. There's questions of care or concern. And this week, what we've discovered, and what I think this video helped highlight for you, is that there are also defensive questions. And these are questions that come up in the middle of an argument. These aren't questions that are introducing suspicion. They aren't questions that are trying to restore relationships. These are questions that, when asked, they're trying to control. They're trying to control the environment, control the relationship, control the outcomes. And in the confrontation, these are the questions that sort of keep us in the hot, keep us out of the hot seat, and they help us dodge any real responsibility in our life. And as the video highlighted for you so so very keenly, this is what politicians are really good at, right? They're really good at asking questions that will do help them dodge the answers. So it, it's, a, it's a technique called pivoting. So they pivot often or they evade responsibility. And pivoting, as I would define it, is a way of taking a question that's right on target and moving it just a little bit so that you can answer it on your terms. You can answer the question exactly how you want to do it. And, you know, we see this all over. And, of course, I know you've had your stories of seeing it with politicians. One of the, one of the greatest moments that this occurred historically, and it always occurs in presidential debates, uh, but there was this question. I think it was a 2004 debate, October or somewhere around there. It was the third presidential debate between um, John Kerry and George W. Bush. And the questioner asked George W. Bush at that time, said, look, if someone came to you and asked you what you were going to do about jobs because they had just lost their job, what would you say to the person who has just lost their job? I mean, it was a very clear question. What would you say to the person who's lost their job because the decisions you've made in the last four years? And within three sentences, if you go back and look at the debate, you can see this. Within three sentences, George W. Bush moves the question away from jobs and plants it directly into something that he's proud of, education. 
the No Child Left Behind bill. So he moves the pivot away and he plants it right in the middle of what he is proud of, what he loves, and he starts to talk for the next five minutes on education and never returns to the job. This is pivoting. And by pivoting so masterfully, what he was able to do in that moment is he's able to refocus our minds and he would, of course, in that moment, go on to win the 2004 presidency. We wouldn't focus on the amount of jobs that we had lost in 2004. Instead, through that mastery in shifting, we would focus on other things. And despite the fact, you know, in that year alone, we had lost like 100,000 manufacturing jobs, he was able to recapture our minds and to shift us just a little way. Now, you may have guessed this already, but pivoting and defensive question asking is not original with him. Right? He's not the one who introduced that to the world. Uh, it, no politician is the one who introduced that to the world. This just happens to be the very type of question that was first asked by us humanity. There's a question asked by the serpent. That's the first question in all of scripture. The first question asked by God is a question of care, but the very first question that came out of the mouths of human beings is a pivoting question, a defensive question. Am I really my brother's keeper? Is that who I am? Is that what you think of me? Is that how this goes? Right? And for three weeks in, you know, we're three weeks in and we finally arrived at this question that's asked by, by human beings. And it's not a question where we're trying to raise the suspicion. It's not a question where we're trying to restore a relationship. On the contrary, it's a question where we're defensive of our own life. It's a question meant to, in this case, protect us and help us avoid the truth that is out there. And what is the truth? The truth is the fact that the first human death recorded in Scripture doesn't come at the hands of God. It comes at our hands. It's us who did it. We're worried all along. In fact, early on with the serpent who comes in, in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent tries to tell us that it is God who will, who will kill us. It is God who will destroy us. It is God who will take our lives. But what we discover by Genesis chapter 4, that death was actually introduced not by God, but by us. And in this moment when Cain and Abel are facing this reality and Cain in particular is coming in front of God on the other side of destroying and taking his brother's life, he's defensive about that reality. He steps back. And so in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel are living into a relationship that God has sought for them. We see in verse 3 this happened. Here's, here's how it happens, and we'll bring this back up on the screen for you. For the first time, humanity is bringing their offerings to God, and this is what happens. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. Now you'll remember last week, that the model of grace that God established was not just that humanity would, would offer these sacrifices to God, but the model of grace and sacrifice was first established by God, God offering sacrifice for humanity. He killed the animal, he clothed Adam and Eve with it. That's the first sacrifice that's given. But here, we start to see the roles reversed. Humanity is offering something back to God. And we see in this moment two different types of offerings. Really clear. Right? There's two different things that are coming up. Now, there are some obvious omissions from the story. We don't know exactly why God preferred one over the other. But what we do see is two different offerings. An offering of vegetables, fruits of the ground, and an offering of the fatlings, of the animals that came. And God accepted the latter, and he did not like the former. Now, at this point, there's no commandments have been given, no temples have been built. Nobody knows why they were making this sacrifice. They didn't have to. There was no law that told them they did it, no model of sacrifice. And yet there are these two brothers making these sacrifices before God. And of course, in this moment, we don't know why God chooses the, the latter over the former. Right? And that's the second omission from the text. It says, And the Lord God had regard for Abel 
and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And because of this, Cain was very angry, and it says his countenance fell. Two sacrifices are made in this moment. One is acceptable, the other is not. And according to the text, we don't know why. We're not sure why, right? We can speculate, but the fact remains the Bible is silent on this moment. It just says one was acceptable, the other is not. And I think it's silent for a couple reasons. One, in the context of these two verses, we see the introduction of humanity's most long-standing vice, comparison. This is the moment where comparison is first offered. Cain and Abel are in comparison with each other, and Cain is surely falling into the comparison trap in this moment. And the trap of comparison, guess what? In your life, when you compare yourself to others, it doesn't need a rational explanation. It doesn't need any rational explanation at all. It it just is. I don't need sound reason to compare myself. I don't need any reason at all to fall into this trap. I do it all the time. It's my reality. And that's ultimately the point. Abel is making his offering, Cain is making his offering, and God gives this moment where he, he's like, you know, I prefer Abel's offering, right? I'm not sure why. I mean, I know personally if I was offered a supreme pizza or a meat lover's pizza, I would eat the meat lover's every single time, right? That's just me. Like, I would, I would go with it. That it, Give me the heart attack on a platter, I don't care. I'm, I'm going to eat that every single day. I don't need to offer you a, a rational explanation. And, you know, and I know some of you are the exact opposite from me. You'd go for the veggie pizza and fine, have it. I will take my pizza and I'll shove all the veggies on your plate. I will give in that way. You don't owe me a rational explanation as to why you prefer that over the other. You don't owe anybody that explanation. I don't owe anybody uh, that explanation. But the problem that this story is trying to highlight, it's not God's preference. It's not whether God chooses meat lovers or supreme. That's not the point. The problem that this text is trying to highlight is Cain's response to God's choice. In the context of the story, Cain fell into this comparison trap like you and me fall into this comparison trap. And he started to assume in this moment that God's preference for Abel's offering was equated to God's preference for Abel. Let me say that again because that's really important for us to hear. Sometimes when we see God's preference for things, we assume and equate it with God's preference for people. And that's not right. In this moment, God's preference for the offering that Abel would offer over Cain's was not God's preference for Abel over Cain. And this, my friends, this trap that that Cain fell into is the dangerous trap of comparison. The comparison trap tricks us into thinking that our worth is grounded in what we do instead of who we are. And when we look at what we do instead of who we are, we're quick to compare ourselves with others. And there's always, always, always going to be a loser in that game. Always. Somebody is going to lose in the middle of that game. And it's at this point in the story that God noticed exactly what was going on. And so he went to Cain in this moment. He goes to Cain in this moment, and he tries to give him an out. Right? He sees that Cain's countenance fell. He notices everything that's taking place. And listen to what he says. In verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Right? Why has your countenance fell in this moment? I can see your trouble. I can see that something's bothering you. I see, ultimately, that you have fallen into this trap. You're comparing yourself with your brother and what happened in that scenario. And in the next verse, God actually gives him some guidance about how to handle those feelings. All that's going on inside of him, how, he, he wants to help him. He wants to help him make the right decision in the middle of the trap. And that's why God says what God says in verse 7. He says, look, if you do well, I know, I know what you're wrestling with right now, but if you do well, you will be accepted, okay? If you don't do well, 
I promise you, sin is lurking at the door and you don't want to deal with sin. You don't want to handle sin. You don't want that to be there because ultimately its desire is for you, but you have to master it. So he's giving him this out even early on. He's like, I see everything that's going on. I see how you're cycling in and out of this problem. I see how you're wrestling with it. And I see, you know, Cain, your face has changed colors. You're now red. You're not, you know, you're not thinking straight. Let me just help you sort this out. And sometimes we assume in this moment that God is talking about Cain's offering, right? Like, well, next time you'll do better. All right, next time you'll do better, you'll offer me the animals like I like them. You won't give me the veggie pizza. I'll be happy about that, right? But God's not talking about the offering. He's addressing that internal anger that Cain is dealing with on the other side of his comparison. God sees deep inside of Cain's heart. He perceives his very thoughts, and God sees deep into your heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows your motivations. He knows all of those things. And just like this story where he knew already what Cain intended to do, he knows what the intentions of our heart are, even when we don't. Right? Even when we've not been able to see that far down the line, God already knows it. And there's these times where God introduces his grace into our lives to help us, to warn us, to keep us away from doing those things. And he had wanted Cain in that moment, and he had went to Cain in that moment because he noticed that about Cain. He noticed that his countenance had fallen. He noticed that anger, and he wanted to help him. He wanted to help him in the same way that he helped or tried to help Cain's mom and dad. He warned him in the same way that he warned them. But you know the story. We read it just a minute ago. Cain made his own decision. Cain allowed the comparison trap to take over his mind and his heart. And here's what Cain did. In the next verse we see, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And when they were in the middle of the field, Cain at that moment rose up against his brother Abel and he killed him. The irrational comparison trap that Cain had fallen into took over his life and it took his brother's life. It not only consumed him in the way that God was talking about, but it also caused him to start taking other people's life. And there's such an irony to this moment because we live all of our lives fearing a God who will take our lives. Don't eat that, God will take your life. Don't do that, God will take your life. Don't go there, God will take your life. And yet, we are the ones who introduce death into the world by our comparison between each other. Not God, not the death angel, not the devil, us. We did it. We introduced the reality of death into this world. And this is what the comparison trap does. It kills our regard for brothers and sisters. It kills our compassion for other people. The way I would say it is is simply this. Comparison is the thing that kills our compassion, and it causes us to deny our human responsibility. And that's why this story begins with the reality of Cain killing Abel, and then it introduces the very first question that we ever asked. You see this moment right after Cain kills Abel where God comes back to Cain and he asks him a question. He says, where's your brother Abel? For the very first time, humanity chooses to use a question. Now, where else have we seen this? But finally, we ask a question and we ask a question to evade, to pivot away from responsibility. Cain said to him, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Is that me? You notice how quickly Cain pivots in this story, right? The politician is born in a moment, right there, Genesis chapter 4. God asks where Abel is. Cain dodges the question and on with a, with a defensive question, right? He pivots with the question, a question with a question. And in this case, in this case Cain's question is a question that is specifically used to hide his own sin, 
It's a question used to deny his own responsibility. The first human question ever recorded in Scripture is this question of human responsibility. Who are we responsible for? How far does that responsibility go? And when, God, and when Cain asked this question of God, he asked it out of a fear of scarcity, right? A fear of scarcity that was ultimately developed because he lived in a world of comparison. He didn't think there would be enough because he was comparing himself with someone else. If he cared for his brother, would there be anyone there to care for him? If he cared for others, would there be space for him? Would he be able to live into that space? If his brother succeeded, would there be room for his own success? He feared that there wouldn't be enough. And how many times in your life and my life have we made decisions in the same way? decisions that are made out of comparison. If I do this, will there be something there for me? If I give in this way, will someone give back to me? If I dedicate my time here, who will give me time back? Who will show me love? Who will help me out, right? And so instead of constantly giving and, and extending our arms of compassion and care to others around us, we start to hoard because we think that there's not enough. We fear that there wouldn't be enough, that if God, like he did in this case, if God loved Abel, then there wasn't enough love to go around for Cain. If God loved X, Y, or Z, there's not enough love to go around for me. So instead of doing without, what would Cain do? He would just take Abel out. Right? Instead of living without God's love, he would remove Abel's life. He would take it away. He didn't need that in his life. He could have God just focusing on him, not worrying about Abel. And again, he did what we all are prone to do. He took matters into his own hands. He assumed responsibility for himself and no one else. And in that place, that led to death. That led to destruction. And here's the sad truth of that approach to life. When we approach life in that very way, when you're only responsible for you, no one else matters to you. When you're responsible only for you, no one else matters but you. You live this life that's isolated and separated from everyone else and everything else, and you wonder why. But you've chosen a life that only focuses on you, and everyone else gets blocked out. And God outlines this for Cain. In the next three verses, he tells him exactly what's going to happen. He knew exactly what would happen. In verse 10, he goes on, he says, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And because you have chosen to live your life for you and only you, you're going to be cursed for that. And he says this. He says, And now, in verse 11, Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand goes on, when you till the ground in the future, it's not going to yield to you its strength. It won't be able to. You'll be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. If you choose you, there is no place on earth where you can ground yourself, where you can connect with others. Cain is never, ever, ever going to be able to settle into the ground. He's never going to be able to till into the ground. He's never going to be able to find strength in the ground. He's going to wander the earth in isolation and loneliness but if he would have just leaned into others, he could have found the stability of the earth. He'll live as a wanderer, lost and alone. And this is the type of world that he chose to live in because he lived into that comparison. And that's why isolation and loneliness are plagues in our society today. The world that we live in is isolated and alone because it's a world that craves comparison. It's a world that's built on the back of comparison and that lives into this reality of scarcity as if we're never going to have enough, that God can't provide enough, that there's not going to be enough for your family, and so it's just me and me and me. And when it's just me and me and me, 
there's only me. There is no other world to explore. And I wander around in isolation and loneliness all the days of my life. And if that's the life we live, and if I'm the only one, if I'm the only one in the world that I'm responsible for, then there's no one else that matters to me except me. And I will live in this world as a wanderer, lost and alone, just like Cain. I'll live in this world like a fugitive on the run. I'll live in this world completely abandoned by everyone else. And maybe, maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you felt the weight of comparison in your life. And you haven't felt it in those clear terms to say that I've been comparing myself to others, but you felt it because you know you're isolated. You feel the repercussions of a life that has been lived in that way for a long, long time, and so you just feel the isolation all around us. You can feel the weight of that, and you could probably even identify with Cain's response. Cain's response is one of the most dramatic moments in the story. He says to the Lord in verse 13, My punishment is greater than I can bear. I can't do it. I cannot live under the weight of this punishment. Today, he says, you've driven me away from the soil. I'll be hidden from your face forever. I'll live as a fugitive and a wanderer, and anyone who meets me will want to kill me. I mean, this is Cain's confession. Perhaps this is your confession as as well. You can't live under the weight of that isolation. You can't live under the weight of that loneliness anymore, wandering the world where only you are the one who's important. And you're feeling it. It's taking your life away. You would say, just like Cain, this is going to kill me if I don't do something about it. I want you to hear God's response because God's response is one of grace in this moment. The Lord looked back at Cain on the other side of that confession and in verse 15, he says to him, not so, not so. For whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And in that moment, the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. It's a seal. Another, another word, the, the, the Hebrew word here is oath that mark. Another way to translate it is a seal, a token. He sealed his life with grace. He covered him with that. In the same way that we talk about being sealed and wrapped in God's grace and protected in all these ways, this is what God did for Cain in this moment. Cain, the one who first committed murder. Cain, the one who didn't deserve life, right? Once again, God responds with grace. And this is, this is an interesting moment for me, especially as I read through Scripture. This is the very first, remember, the very first moment of death in Scripture. This is the very first murder in Scripture. It's the perfect moment for God to respond with capital punishment. It's the perfect moment for God to, to respond with divine retribution. And yet He doesn't. He responds in grace. God knows that Cain will live for the rest of his life with the weight of that decision. That's his punishment. That's punishment enough. But in this space, God wants to create some room for grace to meet him. And when that grace comes, what happens is restoration follows. And here's how it follows. God's call for restoration compels Cain to avoid comparison. It compels you to avoid comparison and to start attending to each other to start loving on each other, to start being with each other. This is not just for Adam and Eve. This is not just for the victim. This is a unique space. This is, this is amazing. This is, this is amazing to me. This is the space of grace for the victimizer, not the victim, not the ones who are hurting because of someone else's sin. This is unprecedented. 
that God in this moment would give grace to the one who harmed. And we like oftentimes in this comparison trap to push that out on somebody else and assume that we're not the victimizer, that we're not the one who caused harm. But the grace that God gave to Cain is the grace that God gives to all of us who harm others. It's the grace that God wants to give to everyone. Not just the victims, not just the ones who have received the pain, but the ones who dish it out, the ones who harm others because of their comparison. You and me. When it comes to God, this is the seal that he places on Cain, and this is the seal that he places on you and me so that we can avoid this comparison trap and that we can start to live in a world where we hold each other where we're responsible for each other. I mean, can you imagine for just a moment how different our world would be if we would approach victimizers, assailants, criminals in this way? Can you imagine what it would look like? If we stopped just comparing ourselves to them, you know, comparing the us versus them, and we started to treat them as those who were marked with grace because we are them. We are those victimizers. We are those criminals. We are those assailants. We are the ones who, like them, are marked by grace. It is us. It is not us versus them. It is us. And if we saw ourselves in them, like them, we would see our need for grace. And I believe that's God's call to you today. I believe that's God's call to us today. To avoid the comparison that pulls us apart and to start attending to each other whoever the other is, so that we can all find grace. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for the grace that comes to us through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, that even when we are the ones who deserve that divine retribution and punishment, it is your grace that goes before us. Like it went before Cain to seal him, to mark his life, to set him up in a space where others would actually see him, where they wouldn't avoid him or try to take his life, but they would clearly see him and that he wouldn't be alone. God, you've marked us all. You've placed that grace upon all of our lives and you've invited us into a space where we can live in a world where it's not just us versus them, but it's just us. Help us this day to avoid the trap of comparison, to attend to each other, the way that you've called us to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.